this past May. Um, it has uh, been reasonably well received. It's a kind of an unusual look at the American Revolution. It is based in large part on uh, some information that was revealed to me when I was just flipping through an anthology of little known stories of the, of the American Revolution and ran across a case reference called Somerset v. Stewart. That's the source of the name of the book. Uh, it's explained in the uh, author's notes uh, in the book. But at any rate, to uh, summarize relatively uh, quickly and, uh, and uh, shorten it, um, I'd never heard of this case and it was being cited as a potential motivator for the American Revolution. So I looked into it and was stunned at what I found and it led me right into uh, a second motivator for the revolution that our Boston friends may be very familiar with, and that's the Hutchinson Papers. And I must confess, I was not familiar with that uh, potential motivator either. And when I uh, looked into that, there was a common link to both of those. And the common link to both of those is where we're gonna start our slideshow. I've learned from uh, my early audiences that they wanted a delineation of the cast of characters. So we're gonna look at some of the characters that are involved in this story. And uh, we're gonna tee this off with Sarah's assistance. So thank you and we'll pull up the first slides. With any luck at all. There we go. So again, I wanna thank the Francis Tavern Museum for uh, this opportunity to uh, share this information with you. Uh, thank you all for your attendance and uh, uh, bear with me. And I think uh, we may re reveal some things for you that you might not know about the American Revolution, even if you are an expert. So let's go on to the next slide. I typically ask my audiences, do you know this man? Now, some of you are very sophisticated East Coast historians, and you may say, oh, I know who that is, but I usually get a blank in the Midwest. They look at that and they go, I have no idea who that is. For those of you unaware, that's Benjamin Franklin. This uh, portrait was rendered by an artist named Robert Peakey in 1748 when Franklin was 42 years old. I love this picture because this is the only extant portrait that we have of Franklin before his more familiar portrait as an old man. So if you go to the next slide for a minute, there's the Franklin that we all know. But this Franklin was executed by Gilbert Stuart uh, in about 1775. And uh, therefore, uh, by this point, Franklin was well into the American Revolution. So let's go back to the first one again. There, and this Benjamin Franklin was the one that was pursuing freeing the colony of Pennsylvania from its proprietors. Why did he want to do that? Well, let's go two slides now, next and next. This is the only man in Franklin's long life that historians agree was the only man he ever hated. This man is Thomas Penn and Thomas Penn is the uh, proprietor of Pennsylvania from about 1735 up until the American Revolution. Thomas Penn was the son of William Penn. Uh, unlike his father, Thomas Penn was not a Quaker. Thomas Penn had gravitated back to the Anglican church. He rubbed elbows with the nobility in London 
After 1741, he had nothing further to do within the Pennsylvania colony and was simply trying to recover the bankruptcy of his father and to restore his family's fortune. He did that very nicely, but he did it on the backs of the Pennsylvania settlers. This frustrated Franklin to no end because Pennsylvania essentially went through two wars, King George's War and the French and Indian War with little in the way of colonial defense. So Franklin traveled to London in uh, 1756 to uh, try to address this problem. Let's go to the next slide. Before his second trip to London, he had met in 1770, I'm sorry, in 1754, the man on your left. And the man on your left is Thomas Pownall. Again, our Massachusetts friends may recognize that name because he was at one point the royal governor of Massachusetts. But Franklin met him originally at the Albany Congress that was called by the Board of Trade in London to try to establish a defense plan for the American colonies. Franklin had already written a rough draft for what he called the Albany Plan of Union. He and Pownall met together for several days during that Congress, and ultimately they combined to produce the final document that we know today as the Albany Plan of Union. That was uh, authored by Franklin and Pownall. And from that point on, the two of them had a very close personal friendship that lasted throughout the remainder of Franklin's life. Now on the right side is a portrait of the Board of Trade ex executed in 1775. You can't see the figures very well, but over there by the big window, there's a man hunched over a desk. That man would be Thomas Pownall's younger brother, John, who is the first secretary of the Board of Trade. The reason that that's important is because of John's contact as first secretary of the Board of Trade with his brother Thomas, and then with Franklin, these men were able to start plotting together for a mechanism for achieving a successful revolution of the colonies against Great Britain. Next slide. The two men on this slide, the first one on the left is Peter Collinson, a botanist from uh, London. And the one on the right, not seeing him on mine, but hopefully he's on yours, um, is, let's go down to that, slide we just had there. No, next, previous slide, previous slide, there we go, previous slide, uh, would have been John Fothergill. And Fothergill is a London physician that was going to be Benjamin Franklin's personal physician every time Franklin traveled to London. Now, while Franklin was in London, he had an invitation from Lord Combs, this man that's on my slideshow uh, in the very elaborate garb. He was the Chief Justice of the Scottish Supreme Court. He was also the Director of the Scottish Enlightenment. It was under his leadership that the University of Edinburgh became the premier university in Europe. And Lord Combs and Franklin also became very close friends for the remainder of Lord Combs's life. Um, Lord Combs was the one that would propose to Franklin a successful approach to establishing a revolution. The next slide. The two men on the next slide, the one on the left is David Hume, 
The one on the right is Adam Smith. These were the two shining stars of the Scottish Enlightenment. Hume would give Franklin a blueprint for revolution and would describe in great detail how that could be accomplished. But up until 1774, Hume never put that together with the fact that Franklin was taking notes and was planning a revolution against Great Britain. The man on the right, Adam Smith, you may know as the author of The Wealth of Nations. Adam Smith created the entire science of political economics and it was Adam Smith that would teach Franklin how to finance a revolution. Armed with the blueprint for creating a revolution and financing a revolution, Franklin could start making some more realistic plans. Next slide. This man, also in very elaborate garb, is the Chief Justice of the British Supreme Court. And the British Supreme Court and Scottish Supreme Court were two independent legal systems. In the British Supreme Court, this is Lord Mansfield. Lord Mansfield was considered the greatest jurist of the second half of the 18th century. He was considered by many legal experts as the first quote unquote modern justice in British legal history. One of his associate judges, Blackstone, had written a collection of commentaries based on Mansfield decisions that are still read in law schools across the world today, the Blackstone commentaries, they were based on the decisions rendered by Lord Mansfield. Next slide. So you say, so what is this Somerset versus Stewart decision? The man on the left is a man named Charles Stewart. The cover on the right side of that slide is the cover of my book, plug purely intended. We don't have a portrait of James Somerset. This is a stylized look at what he might have looked like at the time of his trial. James Somerset was owned by Charles Stewart and grew up essentially in the home of Charles Stewart and became the private valet of Charles Stewart. They lived in Virginia. They subsequently relocated to Boston. And in 1769, Charles Stewart moved back to London with his slave. The following year, James Somerset ran away. Charles Stewart put a reward up for his recovery and Somerset was recovered by uh, essentially bounty hunters in London. The bounty hunters brought Somerset back to collect their reward and Charles Stewart was enraged and told them that he didn't want Somerset anymore. They told he told them to load Somerset onto a ship to send him to Jamaica and to auction him off. At this point, the Quakers of London stepped in and they filed for a writ of habeas corpus. They had Somerset released and subsequently filed suit against Charles Stewart. This began the trial of Somerset versus Stewart. Ultimately, this would establish manumission of the first Black African slave in British legal history. That decision was rendered by Lord Mansfield. The entire description of the case is described in great detail within the book. Let's go to the next slide. This individual is Granville Sharp. Granville Sharp was an abolitionist in London. He was an Anglican. He was looking for a case that would force the manumission of a black African slave. 
he had already brought suit in the case of four previous slaves to the court of Lord Mansfield, and each time he did not achieve manumission of a slave. When he finally came upon the case of James Somerset, he brought this case to Lord Mansfield. There is some suggestion in the literature and in the writings of other justices in London of that era that Sharp and Mansfield may have been working together to find a case that would force this manumission of a slave. They both had their own reasons to do this, but ultimately the decision was rendered and Somerset was set free. Next slide. On the heels of Somerset's being set free, Franklin tipped off the colonists in America that for all slave owners, he wanted them to be aware that the British Empire had decided to start freeing slaves. And he informed all the colonists from Delaware to Georgia that if you stayed in the empire, you were going to lose your slaves and thereby you would lose your land and thereby you would lose your fortune. And the only way that they could prevent this would be to separate themselves from the empire. This produced a profound motivator for revolution from Delaware to Georgia. This individual, some of you may recognize, but this individual is the second president of the Continental Congress during the American Revolution. The first president of the Continental Congress, you already know, his name is John Hancock. These presidents served one-year terms. This man succeeded John Hancock. You may not recognize his picture, but you might recognize his name. This is Henry Lawrence. Now, Henry's son, John, appears in Hamilton, the musical now, so he's becoming perhaps better known. The one thing that history does not report about Henry Lawrence is that Henry Lawrence, the man you're looking at right now, was the single biggest trafficker in human slavery of the 18th century. He operated a brokerage firm in Charleston, South Carolina, and personally dealt with perhaps as many as 25,000 Black African slaves during the time that he was primarily involved in that venture. He remained a silent partner in that venture right up until two years before the American Revolution. At that time, he received a letter from Benjamin Franklin warning him that there were some bad problems coming out of the British Empire regarding setting slaves free. And Franklin couldn't think of anybody that would be in a more critical position for having his life threatened than the idea of setting over 600,000 slaves free, all of whom knew the name of Henry Lawrence. Next slide. This man, many of you may recognize, this man was enlisted by Franklin while Franklin was in London. Franklin needed a writer to come back to the, the US to keep the patriots and the common people stirred up to participate in the revolution. And to that end, he needed a writer that could sound like Benjamin Franklin and sound like John Adams, but was willing to essentially put his life on the line to keep the patriots and the common people involved in revolution. So Franklin found this penniless, starving exciseman in a tavern in London. 
This man's name is Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin collaborated on a little treatise that we know today as Common Sense. They originally, Thomas Paine had titled it Plain Truth and Benjamin Franklin, not Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Franklin encouraged him to change the title because Franklin had already published a treatise called uh, Plain Truth. And on that basis, Thomas Paine came up with the name Common Sense. So Thomas Paine comes to the US just before the American Revolution. He publishes editorials throughout 1775 in the Pennsylvania Magazine. At the very end of 1775, when Franklin returns to the US, Franklin says, okay, now go ahead. And immediately Paine publishes Common Sense and it takes all 13 colonies by storm. To this day, it is still considered the best-selling uh, piece of writing in the history of the United States. Uh, by 1776, almost everybody in the colonies had read it. What you might not know is that Thomas Paine then joined George Washington's army. This is where he would meet uh, Alexander Hamilton and they would become friends. He would meet John Lawrence, who is also uh, serving on Washington's staff. Uh, he would also meet Lafayette, also serving on Washington's staff. Payne was instrumental not only in assisting with Washington's army, but he was also serving as secretary for the Continental Congress, and he was serving as the first secretary of state in terms of communication with Benjamin Franklin in Paris. Next slide. These two men you may not recognize, during the American Revolution in 1776, the biggest concern that uh, Franklin was tasked with was financing a revolution. And to that end, the man on the left is named Silas Dean. He was sent to Paris to try to get money from the French crown. Benjamin Franklin had already told the Continental Congress that there was no way that any monarch was going to contribute to the revolution to overthrow a monarchy. And he made it very clear that the only way this was going to happen was through secret funding. Silas Dean did not have the contacts to do this. And so Franklin, six months after Silas Dean, went to Paris himself and started arranging loans. Dean claimed credit for the first major loan, even though it had been arranged quietly by Franklin with his contacts in London and in Paris. But nonetheless, on the heels of that, the man on the right was also sent to help Franklin arrange finance in France. The man on the right is Arthur Lee. Arthur Lee at the time of the American Revolution was serving as the agent for Massachusetts in London. Continental Congress directed him to help Franklin in France. These two men together did nothing but get in Franklin's way the entire time they were there. Ultimately in 1778, Franklin cooked up a couple of schemes to get rid of both of these men. That whole discussion is also covered in the book. Next slide. These two men you probably know. The man on the right is, these are both men from Boston. The man on, the, on, on your left is Samuel Adams. The man on your right is his second cousin, 
a very young looking in this particular portrait, that's John Adams. The Adams cousins were essentially the biggest force in Boston at the time of the revolution in terms of keeping the Patriots stirred up. Many of you may be aware of the fact that Thomas Pownall, who you met earlier, had stolen the Hutchinson letters in London and had provided them to Benjamin Franklin as part of the plot for revolution. Franklin leaked those letters through Thomas Cushing in Boston to the man on the left, Samuel Adams. Samuel Adams published those letters in his uh, Boston newspaper in the summer of 1773. This created quite a stir in Boston because in essence, these letters were considered the primary motivator for the Boston massacre of 1770. The colonists responded in anger and just at the time that they were getting stirred up, ships from London showed up with a tea tax. The London Patriots stormed the ships through over $4 million worth of tea into Boston Harbor. It was a, a, an affair known as the Boston Tea Party. After that, the British are going to respond with what are known as the Intolerable Acts. And these were written specifically to punish the American colonists who wrote those Intolerable Acts, Thomas and John Pownall at the direction of Benjamin Franklin. Why would Benjamin Franklin want to punish the colonists? Because he knew exactly what the reaction would be. And you already guessed the reaction that would occur from the Intolerable Acts. And we know that reaction as Lexington and Concord. Next slide. You may recognize this man. This man is from Scotland. His name is John Paul. He was in the British Navy. He was responsible for the death of two sailors. And as a result, the British military court had put a price on his head. And so he fled to the American colonies to live with his brother, but his brother was living in Virginia and had died while John Paul was en route. And therefore, John Paul found himself with no home when he got to Virginia. Other sailors in the American colonies recommended that he present himself to the Continental Congress and volunteer to serve in the American Revolution, which he did. He was given a ship in Chesapeake Bay and he would cruise up and down Chesapeake Bay for the first six months as an officer, essentially looting British merchant ships and keeping all the cargo for himself. Now the Second Continental Congress advised him that as an officer in the American Navy, he was uh, essentially directed to supply all that cargo back to the United States. And John Paul decided that no, he was just gonna keep it for himself. Finally, the Congress got frustrated with him and sent him back to Franklin in Paris to see if Franklin had any use for this essentially pirate. When John Paul was sent back to Franklin, he realized he was coming into enemy waters. And so he added a name to his first name and he started calling himself John Paul Jones. So you know this man is John Paul Jones. He and Franklin cooked up a strategy whereby John Paul Jones could break the entire British blockade in the American colonies. Next slide. 
you probably don't recognize this man. This man is the fourth Earl of Sandwich. He was known as Lord Sandwich during the American Revolution. He was the Lord Admiral of the British Navy. He alone was responsible for directing all naval traffic in the Atlantic Ocean. This man had an absolute paranoid fear of Benjamin Franklin that had been going on for over five years. This man was absolutely certain that Franklin was plotting against the British crown, which we know now indeed he was, but he felt that Franklin was probably helping the French plot an invasion of Great Britain. So Franklin told John Paul Jones, I'm going to give you four little French warships along with your ship. And all I want you to do is sail up into the Irish Sea, around the North Sea, into the English Channel. I want you to just keep circling Great Britain. I want you to take over any ships you find and loot them. I want you to fire on any British batteries at their smaller ports. I want you to create a general nuisance throughout Great Britain that makes them think that an invasion is underway. And so for the next year, John Paul Jones would do just that, harassing British shipping all around their home ports. And ultimately, the response from Lord Sandwich was, of course, to pull as many ships as he could possibly bring back to defend Great Britain. Where did he pull those ships from? The American blockade. Suddenly by 1780, it became very easy to get weapons and gunpowder to the American patriots running the British blockades because they were virtually non-existent. Next slide. The last person in this slideshow, you may recognize this portrait. This man is Gilbert de Motier, but you know Gilbert de Motier by uh, a more common term in the United States. This is the Marquis de Lafayette. The Marquis de Lafayette was at the time he joined Washington's staff, a young boy of 19. Uh, he was already very wealthy. He was already a French aristocrat. He was already very well versed in military training. He came from a family of uh, military aristocracy. Both his uncle and his father had been uh, officers in the French military. Uh, young Gilbert had been educated in military academies from the time he was six years old. By the time he was 14 years old, he was in the King's Musketeers. By the time he was 16 years old, he was an officer in the French military. And they said in war games, he was absolutely terrifying. He didn't really understand the difference between war games and warfare. And French officers 10 times, 10 years older than him were absolutely terrified by dueling with this man, by participating in war games with this man. He would just brutally attack and you had to call him off. So by the time he got to Washington, he was spoiling for a fight with Great Britain. He conducted himself very um, courageously, and he uh, was instrumental in the uh, Battle of Yorktown. He was instrumental in Washington's officer corps. More importantly, 
uh, he was helping Franklin with propaganda back in France all during the time of the American Revolution. So Lafayette and Franklin were working together side by side to continue to motivate the American colonies during the revolution. By the end of the American Revolution, Franklin, who had already signed the Declaration of Independence, would be one of the signers of both the Peace of Paris and the Treaty of Versailles, bringing those uh, conflicts to an end with the United States. He would be a signer of the uh, United States Constitution, and his is the only name that appears on all four of those documents, not as a coincidence, but as part of Franklin's grand plan. Next slide. So that should conclude the slideshow. The, in the book, we use uh, some created dialogue, much along the lines of what you might read from uh, uh, Battle Angels about the Civil War. Um, but we stay true to the individuals involved. What the book actually does is it is going to give you inside information and a look at what Benjamin Franklin was doing in London, what Benjamin Franklin uh, was accomplishing in France, who he was working with both in France and in London. You will learn about the Pownall brothers. You will learn about America's uh, problem with its secret agent from the British government, a man named Edward Bancroft. Um, you'll find out about Thomas Paine and his role in the American Revolution and where Thomas Paine goes after the American Revolution. You'll hear about where John Paul Jones goes after the American Revolution. And most importantly, you will finally understand, many of you perhaps for the first time, why Benjamin Franklin is indeed considered the godfather of the American Revolution. So at this point, I'll take questions. That was wonderful, thank you. I really enjoyed the, the portraits. It was a good refresher to remind myself of what everybody looked like because so often you only see the older Franklin and never the younger Franklin. So that was a good reminder for me <laughs> that he didn't just magically come out as an 85 year old man. <laughs> exactly. And, and we think, how did this old grandfather achieve the status that he did and, and the renown that he did? And it's because this was ongoing from the time he was in his 40s. Yeah. It's, it's much like looking at every Martha Washington portrait and she's always older. And I was like, no, I, I know that she was in her 20s at some point in time. I know exactly. that she just, you know, wasn't an old matronly woman. Um, I, going back to the fact that you called Franklin the godfather, what sparked me the most was when you mentioned the Earl of Sandwich and how he was so paranoid about Franklin that I've never seen Franklin as like this devious godfather, puppet master kind of a person. So the fact that somebody was like actively thinking that Franklin was out to start something made me change the way I thought about Franklin. Like you and think you know somebody and then you find out these weird, interesting facts and you have to take that step back. Exactly. Franklin by the American Revolution was perhaps the most gifted politician of the 18th century. He was able to win over the entire French government 
the French monarchy was absolutely fascinated with him. The British monarchy was fascinated with him, but the diplomats involved in this were pretty much on the edge of their seats every time they had to deal with this man because they never knew what he was going to be up to and they knew that he was not giving them exactly the straight answers that they were looking for he was planning something else yeah i definitely appreciated the fact that I, now knowing that somebody was genuinely paranoid of franklin because in my mind even as a historian it it's just that eccentric guy who has like a printing press. And I never think of him as somebody so devious. Like I knew he was good with his words, but the fact that his reach was that far was fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what was the most surprising thing that you learned during your research and your compilation of, of writing this book? Pretty much Franklin's relationship to the Somerset case, because you really have to get into the nuts and bolts of that case to understand it. Um, I I'm going to let you do your own reading on this, but there's an interlude section that is separate in the center of the book. I put it in chronological order, but I've encouraged readers who are interested in who Somerset was to read that part first, because what you will learn is that Franklin actually inserts an attorney into this case at the 11th hour. And I suspect in retrospect that Franklin was being tipped off by this attorney from discussions in chambers with Lord Mansfield is how did this case was going to turn out. How do we know that? The most fascinating thing is Franklin writes an editorial in the London Chronicle that appears on, uh, on June 22nd, 1772, that tips off. He, he, what he says essentially is, oh, big deal, Great Britain. You're so honest and you're so kind and you free one slave and yet you continue to ship millions of slaves over to your American colonies. Big deal. But the Somerset decision is not rendered officially by Lord Mansfield until June 24th, two days after that editorial appears in the London Chronicle. Oh, wow. Somebody had tipped Franklin off. I have talked about this with uh, journalism experts on the 18th century. And they've looked at it and they shake their heads. They said, never noticed it, never realized <laughs> it. Like, there it is. Franklin's got little dog whistles all through this because he destroys 99% of his evidence naturally because you didn't want to be the loser in a revolution. So he's destroying evidence constantly, but he hands out little dog whistles that you can track down and you can realize that he was right in the middle of all of this Wow. Every time you think you know Franklin, you learn something else and you're like, didn't know him at all. <laughs> uh, Terry wants to ask, can you briefly go over Pennsylvania Penn family and the revolution at beginning at the beginning of the lecture that you had mentioned? Sure. Her family was in the revolution. German. Good. Um, okay. William Penn founded Pennsylvania. I think people are pretty familiar with that story. Uh, the King of England at that time, Charles II, owed the Penn family a lot of money and didn't have it. And so he said, how about if I give you a bunch of land and you can have a freedom of religion there and you can move all your crazy Quaker people over there and leave us alone and it's a win-win for everybody and there's your colony. So William Penn said, sure, and he took it. 
William Penn was by all indications a very devout Quaker and he was a very kind man. As a result, he was an absolutely deplorable businessman. And by 1710, William Penn was absolutely bankrupt. The colony goes into receivership. Essentially, the estate that he leaves to his family is absolutely worthless. And it is Thomas and John Penn, two of his sons, two of his younger sons, that take over what's left of this essentially skeletonized uh, colony. And by scraping out as much money from it as they can possibly get, they rebuild their finances. They reestablish themselves as the proprietors of this colony. But because the colony is filled with Quakers, they tell a young Benjamin Franklin who is looking for military support to defend them from the French that we're not going to spend any money on this colony. We're taking money out of this colony. That leaves Franklin in a situation where Pennsylvania is totally defenseless against the French in two different wars, King George's War and right on the heels of it, the French and Indian War. And both times, settlers in Western Pennsylvania are slaughtered during warfare, and there's no militia, and there's no British military, and nobody's helping. This is what stirs Franklin up and tells him, I've got to get this colony taken away from Thomas Penn. This guy is going to kill us all. So that's when he starts traveling to London and enlists help from all these people to free up Pennsylvania. He didn't really care at that time about the other 12 colonies. That wasn't his problem. His problem was defending his adopted home, Philadelphia. Interesting. Um, can you briefly just go over, I don't know, I think you covered it. What ends up happening to Somerset after the trial? It's a great question. I get asked this all the time. Unfortunately, Somerset at that point is a black African living in London. We anticipate he never left London. Uh, he is totally lost to history within two months of that decision. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, we would end, he was probably about 32 at the time of that decision. Uh, Black Africans living in London at that time probably didn't have a life expectancy beyond 42 to 45. And so he probably died at about the time of the conclusion of the revolution at the very longest. Wow. Unfortunately, that's common. That's the reality. Yeah. I usually and, find a wall when I try to research things myself and the paper trail just kind of like dies off. Exactly. And, you know, people say, well, this is a great story for Franklin. But when you stop and think about it, no, this is a terrible story. <laughs> this is this is a horrible story. Yeah. And Franklin and, and his conspirators realized it by the end of the revolution. They said, this is a story of terrorism against the British Navy. This is a story of using a slave for our own private purposes. This is a story of using American indigenous peoples. We can't tell this story to our children and grandchildren. We have to destroy this story. We have to make this story go away. And so they do. Well, not totally, because you are able to retell it, which is the great part. Which was a tough <laughs> Yeah, definitely a tough part, but it's definitely those stories that you, you need to tell the good with the bad. I think it's very important that, yeah, we, we got independence. It was a war, but at, at what cost and whose lives were lost and who was displaced? 200, 250 years later, Americans yeah. need to know this story. That's in the author's notes. Somebody just asked about uh, reference books on, uh, on slavery. Um, 
go to your lawyers. Oddly enough, they are writing far better history than our professional historians because they've got an ax to grind that the historians do not. Go to Leon Higginbottom's uh, Imperfect Union. Go to uh, Slave Nation by Alfred and Ruth Bloomrosen. Um, these tell the story not only of Somerset, but of how slavery was being dealt with during the colonial period in the United States. So Higginbottom is a great source. Blue, the Bloomrosen husband and wife are a great source. Um, you can go to um, Robert Parkinson's Common Cause, which is a great source for both the case against Black African slaves as well as indigenous peoples and how propaganda against both those groups created an American revolution. Yeah, that is a great segue into my next question about your research process because you are not a trained historian. You came from this from an outside perspective, which is great because sometimes you've got a fresh eye on things and you'd mentioned that you worked with 18th century journalism experts. And what was that like? Like, Well, I, I was able to, you know, uh, Dr. Parkinson, he's at Binghamton University, which our New York audience knows better than I do. I had to actually look it up. Sorry. Sorry, New York. But <laughs> hey, right. um, he bases a lot of his book, The Common Cause, on heavy duty research into the journalism of the 18th century. My brother is a professional journalist and was on the city desk of the San Francisco Chronicle for years and years and years. And uh, I was able to bounce a few things off of him as well. But Parkinson provided some uh, personal uh, help in terms of tracking down this whole link between Franklin, the uh, London Chronicle, and the Somerset case. So um, a, a vital uh, contact there. As far as my own background, when I stumbled upon the Somerset story, first thing I did was, like all Americans, I Googled it. <laughs> and as I read, I thought, I never heard this story. Now, I'm not boasting or anything like that, but I am a graduate of Northwestern University and the University of Southern California. And I thought, I got screwed. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Why did I not hear this story? Somewhere along the line, this story should have been told and it was not. And that's when I started looking into it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I need to tip off a professional historian or why don't I just tell it myself? Just do it yourself. I'll just, so I just did it myself. Yep. Once you For those unaware, Franklin, there, there's a project called the uh, Packard Institute, which is directed under Yale University. And they have done an absolutely unbelievable job of tracking down everything from the 18th century that ever even mentions Benjamin Franklin. And it's been compiled together. It is cross-referenced both for letters to and from Franklin as well as year by year. So if you want to know what's going on with Benjamin Franklin on July 18th of 1767, you can go to the Packard Institute's papers and you can pull it out. It, it, it's a bottomless pit of information. It's, it's a, just a gold mine that uh, it's going to take 500 years to sort through it. I always get jealous when you hear about 
18th century figures like Franklin that have so much paper paperwork on them. And then you work at Francis Tavern and we've got a couple of like receipts of bills of parties that he had and we know nothing else about him. So every time I hear somebody else researching endless bottomless piles of papers, I'm like, what's that like? <laughs> How much fun could you be having right now? <laughs> well, it reveals some friends that uh, people will, when they read the book, they'll say, I've never heard of this person. Yeah, I have no idea. Definitely fascinating. I wonder if Philadelphia is kind of just like, mm, this doesn't paint our patron saint in a very nice manner. <laughs> it's not, a, I, I tell you, it's not a bad story about Frank. The one thing that, that I, I learned about Benjamin Franklin and that I would leave to your audience and to the public is that the best descriptor of Benjamin Franklin is relentless. Yeah. Once Franklin wanted something, you are not going to deter him. He was going to get it. And it didn't matter how he got it. He was going to get it. It didn't matter how many people he had to run over. It didn't matter how many reputations he had to besmirch. He was going to get what he wanted. And what he wanted was freedom for Pennsylvania. And if it took ripping 13 colonies out of an empire just to get Philadelphia free, by golly, he was going to do it. And so he did. Yeah, there's always that question we get at the museum of just in general of, well, why do you think Franklin never ran for president or became president? And I was like, it's because he didn't want to. It's not like he couldn't have been. It's not like he and, put his hat in the ring. It's just he didn't, he had better things to do. He had better goals and he was driven to do something else. And, and you have to keep in mind that Benjamin Franklin was 81 years old when the constitution was written. Yeah. By that point, he was beyond old. Yeah. Franklin himself was absolutely stunned that he survived the revolution. David <laughs> Hume had told him, if you don't survive the revolution, you're not going to win. You've got to be there yourself. We know that from American history now. When we look at all the successful wars that America has fought, they have always fought them under one president. As soon as you have to split presidencies, that's a war you're going to lose. Yeah. So Franklin knew that he had to survive that war, but that's all he wanted. And once he survived the revolution, to him, the rest of it was window dressing. He <laughs> has a say in the Constitution, but at the end of the day, he actually manipulated the decision as to who was going to chair the Constitutional Convention, and he kept shoving George Washington in front of everybody. Here's your leader. Here's your leader. Here's your leader. And finally, it was clear when they were talking about who was going to be the first president, every delegate in that room knew exactly who was going to be the first president. In fact, they are even, when you look at, the, at those documents, they're actually debating, what are we going to do about his successor? They weren't worried about George. They were worried about how do we deal with the succession after George? Yeah. Uh, George Clayton Ames just wrote in the St. Andrews Society passed a resolution that Dr. Franklin would no longer be a guest of the society. He would have to be hosted by some individual or group, not by the society at large. Interesting. Okay. Um, I am going to ask our very famous last question because we are just about All at right. time. If you could eat at Francis Tavern and dine with somebody, who would it be and why? And I have a feeling I already know your answer, though. So maybe uh, I give you two people. <laughs> I bet you don't. 
I've been asked this before, and there's no question it would be Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, interesting. Absolutely no question. Thomas Paine had no social filter. Thomas Paine (laughs) was right in the middle of the American Revolution. He immediately goes to Paris and gets his neck in the middle of the French Revolution. (laughs) At one point, he was the last Girondist that had not been guillotined, and he was still sitting in the Estates General in Paris while all of his friends were being led out to the guillotine. The man was insane. It would be a, that would be a great weekend <laughs> to spend with Thomas Paine. Do I smell a next book project? Uh, I've moved on. Oh. <laughs> uh, Thomas Paine has been well covered, but yeah. uh, but he's not. People don't read those. He, his reputation is just them. being recovered right now. <laughs> his reputation for two hundred years has been horrible. He was the man that Teddy Roosevelt called that filthy little atheist. And at that point in time, in the late 19th century, Thomas Paine was a total pariah in the United States. So it's only in the last 30 years that Paine's reputation is being recovered. So look at Thomas Paine, folks. Might be time for a musical of his own. Something like that, yes. (laughs) I would go to that musical. Uh, That sounds like it would be a crazy one. (laughs) All right, uh, well, thank you, Mary, for hosting our Q&A. Uh, thank you, Philip, for joining us. This was such a great talk, really interesting. You all should check out his book to read the full story. It's definitely a topic that we don't uh, often hear much about. I wasn't really familiar with it at all before we booked right. this. So I'm going to jump excited. in one second. Sure. I'm going to direct you to philgoodrichauthor.com. There it is. There you go. <laughs> philgoodrichauthor.com. While you're on the internet, if you'd like to stay up to date with everything happening at the museum, you could visit francistavernmuseum.org and sign up for our mailing list or follow us on social media. We're kind of all over those platforms and you can stay informed for the next lecture. We have one coming up in just a few weeks um, in February. So I hope we will see you all there again. If you enjoyed your evening tonight, please consider making a donation to the museum. You can do that again on francistavernmuseum.org. And thank you to those of you who have been donating and attending our programs. You're helping us keep history alive, even if we can't all be in the same historic room together. We can at least see each other on the internet. Um, So with that, have a good evening, afternoon, if you're in a different time zone. And I hope we will see you again in just a few weeks at our next lecture. Good night, everybody.